I'd love to add my quick 30-second story on Satya Nadella. A good friend of mine who I worked with for years applied for a job at Microsoft. This was a principal engineer job. So Microsoft has thousands of principal engineers. So at the end of the interview day, he did very well. And they said to him, there's one more person that's going to interview you, and it's going to be Satya Nadella. So the guy was pretty floored because it's principal engineer. It's not so far many steps away from Satya's office. So he had five minutes with Satya. He sat down with Satya. Satya said, I know the job you're applying for. I've reviewed what the job is. Here's why it's important to Microsoft. I think if you succeed, you're going to get promoted. If you don't, let's just talk about why it failed and, and we'll go from there. I hope you apply. And within hours, he accepted the offer. And there's just so much goodness from that story. First of all, imagine what it signals that the, again, a guy like Satya Nadella, whose time is extremely valuable, is spending that much time talking to a principal engineer candidate. I think it says a huge amount about the company, and that's really what compelled him to sign the offer. So those are the kinds of things you want to think about as a CTO, right? How are you presenting yourself? And are you showing the candidate that the company cares about bringing you on? To seven CTOs, my name is Etienne De Bruin, and you're in the CTO studio. We're talking about hiring. We spoke last time about this big hiring problem that the globe is experiencing. And we try to take it out of la-la land and abstractness into what is the actual hiring problem that CTOs are experiencing. Today, we want to think more about the actual hiring process. So just to jump in, Augustine and Paul, when you even hear the words hiring process, like what are the first things that come to mind? Certainly, I think for me, the first thing that comes to mind is alignment. Like one of the most important things that, that companies that do this well start with is the idea of aligning everybody within the organization on what they're looking for and how they're going to look for it. I think that's the number one thing. Yeah, I, I think for me, it comes down to building a team. I think too often we think of hiring as the act of finding an individual and doing hiring without thinking hard about the team that we need is to me like the biggest fail that I see. So I think if, I like to think of hiring as the holistic thing of what role are we trying to fill within a larger kind of picture? Yeah, and, and something that we talk about a lot at 7CTOs is this idea of stretching out the organization. The role of CTO being not what do we need next, but really how and to where and to how deep and to how wide do we need to stretch out the technology organization to be able to create the vacancies for the right people. And that requires that level of insight as to where we're headed, why we're headed there, and then to be able to start attracting the right people for those roles. I think that's exactly right. What's the larger picture? And what's the sort of edge of the company? I think this is so important, right? Like we really want our employees to be in service of the really the competitive advantage or the edge of the company if you will, as opposed to just saying, thinking about it almost like a task list, like thinking, oh, we've got all of this work to do. Here's a long laundry list of things. And yeah, oh yeah, we need warm bodies to just attack this task list. And thinking more strategically about, well, could this is this list of tasks really about hiring 
people? Or is it about thinking about how we farm out the work and, and how we think about that work strategically? One of the ways this, we see this cashing out concretely day to day is what you said, Etienne, about being strategic about hiring and it being a multi-year process. What we see a lot is budget gets approved. It's a mad rush to fill the recs that you now have budget for. And look, doing things with either an inbound strategy or with something organic, that takes time to build that funnel and build that process. Whereas when you need warm bodies now, because you've got budget approved, guess what you're going to do? You're going to pay through the nose to a recruiter or something else and probably make suboptimal hires just because you're in such a rush. Again, like you said, Etienne, not thinking strategically about, about hiring. And, and this baffles my mind because every if, if there's 200 companies, there are 200 CTOs that are like this and need to hire stat. Suddenly there's an influx of cash. We have to find people. It's always seems to be behind the eight ball on the, this process. And, and that's why, Britain, I really wanted to just add some meat to these bones because people like to talk about the hiring process. People like to complain about recruiters. People like to pawn off the responsibility of the funnel to internal recruiting teams or marketing departments. Why is it that we are so behind in a process that we seem to loathe as well? Maybe part of the answer is right there because a lot of people see it as a thing they have to do as opposed to a source of competitive edge for their company. And when it's something that you're maybe not necessarily great at, and it's something that you see as a chore, then yeah, it's just going to be a lower priority pretty naturally. Yeah. I, I love, this is something I love to talk about, Etienne. As you, I, I think the, to me, the biggest thing that's broken that we need to think differently about is the way that organizational structures have settled for whatever reason over the past 20 or so decades. Almost every company has divided up the work of recruiting to an HR recruiting team. So what has happened, I think, a, a huge amount of the problem is just organizational. So you have this setup in most companies where you have the CTO, you have their technical organization, then you have HR and HR has your recruiting department. And the transaction is that the technical team email their HR recruiter, and then it's HR recruiting's job to just source the resumes. And the technical team just literally just sits and waits for a bunch of resumes to magically appear. And that I think is a great starting point for what's broken and what needs to be fixed. As the only person with no experience in, in tech and being a part of this in a company, what I mm -hmm. hear if I really zoom out is that it sounds like people get really caught up in problem solving versus vision building. So the next hire right. becomes just the thing to push someone through to get somebody there because there's some problem you have to solve. Versus what Augustine put in at the beginning, which is, what's the vision? What are we actually building? What are we working towards? I think it's easy to get caught in a tactical, as Etienne was saying, in tactical mode where, okay, let's just get the next three hires and then we'll figure it out later. And you never do. You just keep rolling. Well, the teams that really do this well are the teams that are highly strategic and work on something just to make this practical for people listening to them. They actually have a, an opinion about their employer brand and their team brand in the CTO. So they actually think about who are we as an employer? What brand do we want to put out there? And they actually work on developing that brand so that candidates are attracted to it. Yeah. One of the things we always talk about at Certified Hiring is the idea that every company has to tell three different stories. They have to tell a story to their investors. They have to tell a story to their customers. 
and they have to tell a story to their employees and prospective employees. And marketing departments are really good at the second thing, telling a story to their customers. And investor relations and the C-suite is usually really good at telling a story to the investor. But the story of the employer brand that Paul's talking about often just gets forgotten about. Or maybe you repurpose a marketing video and call it a recruiting video or something like that. And, and that doesn't work. It just does. How often do you think, and uh, speaking as a CTO type who's had to learn that I can't do everything myself, how often do you see this as a limitation in the CTO's mindset of, I bring value when I can do something. Mm. I bring value when I am the person with all the answers. This is something that I should be able to do. I, I think this is a great point, especially when you're the company that size. Everything you've done up to that point has been because of your blood, sweat, and tears, right? A startup, you do everything yourself. And so it's very difficult to let go of that mindset. You built the product by yourself. And so why wouldn't you do everything else by yourself? The pivot that I think leaders have to make is go from building products to building teams. And that's, they're not the same. They're different. You can use the same skill set, but they're different uh, mindsets. And you have to think about those things differently. And right there is the challenge. You're bumped right into a different lane that maybe you weren't coached to be in throughout your career as an engineer. Yeah, exactly. That's, I think you hit the nail on the head is as an engineer, you can go through engineering school or code school or any, anything else. You're not going to learn how to do that thing that you just described because you're evaluated continuously on how good you are technically. And when it comes time, it, you don't have to be a CTO. You can just be a senior engineer that has a junior person coming on their team and your job a lot of it should be to get that person as good, as fast as they possibly can. Speaking for myself, in some sense, it was easier. When I was a trader and, and we hired a new person onto my desk, they were invariably smarter than I was. I'm just going to leave that out there as a fact. And so it was true, right? They, these people were just definitely smarter than I was. However, I had more domain-specific knowledge and experience than they did. And so it was my role. I felt very deeply, it became obvious because that's my differential advantage at work was transferring that domain knowledge to them and getting them in this sort of Socratic way, get spun up to the stuff that I know, and then they could take it farther than I could. And I think that mindset, which was a necessity for me at that time, is still, I think, the right mindset for a senior person, whether it's a senior engineer, a director, a CTO. Yeah. You may have more domain-specific knowledge either about the product or about the business or about the organization, the company. But it is your job to transfer that to somebody else so that they can do their job. I like to talk about four, when I do coaching, I talk about four levels of career development. I think this relates to hiring. So the first is contributing, and then you have managing, and then you have leading is number three. Most people may, might top out at, at that level, but then the fourth level is representing. So the, that's the ladder you want to climb. I think for technical people, going from contributing to managing actually isn't that hard, right? Because maybe to use a metaphor, if you're a good car mechanic, you could probably supervise someone else repairing a car and say, no, you're doing that wrong. You're doing that wrong. Leading is different. Leading is creating the environment where success can happen. But then representing, I think, is really interesting. If you look at, to take a big example, like what does Tim Cook do? Tim Cook is in Washington half the time, like representing Apple, representing the interest. Of, he's not even leading. He's beyond leading. He's like, at this point, just representing the company. 
But even for smaller companies, $10 million companies, you still have to be out there representing your team. And that's what's going to help attract candidates. You have to be the face of the technical team to the world. And that's what's going to attract candidates to your group. What have you seen? Where are the hotspots in that hiring process where you feel like CTO is really stepping into a process here that was working until they had all these other ideas? So the first thing that comes to mind is being very self-aware about what the top of the hiring funnel looks like for any given company. There's two important failure modes or, or problems that we see for tech companies. One is we call it the castle, where you're besieged by terrible applicants and it's your job to throw tar on them and get them off the castle walls. That's one extreme. And then the other extreme is the deserted island where nobody knows you exist. Those are kind of the two extremes of failure modes. And they're both solved at some level by this, by Paul's idea of representing. If you can speak very clearly about your company, about why it's compelling and why it's interesting, and I love the stuff you've done, Etienne, on LinkedIn about this, how to create a good job description, how to talk about your company in a way that's exciting and compelling, you can fix both problems, right? You're no longer on the deserted island. People feel compelled to at least understand what you're all about. And on the castle side, bad candidates understand that this is not for them and they don't apply. And so you don't lose time, waste time doing that. So the more as a tech leader, and especially as a CTO, because you have so much legitimacy and so much power in the eyes of technical applicants when you speak, that is your voice. That is the way to guide the applicant pool in the direction that you want to guide it. So it sounds like if you aren't really clear on the vision of the company and who you are inside of it and what where your team is going, then going into a hiring process, you're probably going to end up either in the castle or the island. I think that's right. One thing we always like to say is engineers are not pistachio nuts. And so for two reasons. One is because every human being is different, right? And every human being is is compelled by and, and appeals to something different. But the other thing is, when you go to the store and buy pistachio nuts, you decide which pistachio nuts go in your bulk bag. But in the end, in a hiring, the candidate has the final say. They have the final decision on whether they take your offer or somebody else's. And so that power imbalance means that you have to think about the whole process of hiring in a very different way. It's not like you're going to the store where you say, okay, one Java engineer, please. And it's like, bing, check out. Okay, now they're in my company. It is not like that at all. And yet a lot of companies act as though that is the market they're operating in. They're not. Yeah. And so this goes to, it's a great point, to, to the way that you, when we get back to how do you build a system, because the good news is engineers and CTOs love building systems, right? They That's what they do when they build products. That's how they run their engineering team. So by all means, have a pro, we have to have a system. The key though, like Augustine is saying, is it isn't a, a simple transaction. It's much more like matchmaking, frankly. I know that's a cliche in, in the hiring world, but frankly, it's true. And so so what does it mean to, to say it's more like matchmaking? For one, when you're writing job descriptions, which is often the CTO's job, we'll, we'll be write these job descriptions. We don't want to make the job description a sort of laundry list of attributes you're looking for, right? To Augustine's point, you're not describing the perfect person. What you actually do, I mean, you think about what do you do in a matchmaking thing? You describe yourself, actually. What do you, and then you describe the relationship you want. What is the relationship you want with this candidate? In other words, what are they going to do at work? And how do you want to work with them? Rather than specking out a human down to what their behaviors are, that wouldn't work in a matchmaking scenario. And it certainly doesn't work in a job description. And 
very concretely, check out whoever's listening to this, check out your job descriptions. If you have a sentence that looks something like, we are really interested in individual contributors who can also contribute well in teams, you haven't told me anything. And so that is empty words on a job description. There's a lot, there's dozens of other ways that, that this manifests itself, but be yourself, be opinionated on the job description. It's going to turn off some people. Fine. Those people weren't a match anyway. What you want to do is excite the people with whom your message resonates. And I just want to give both of you credit for the LinkedIn stuff I've been posting is stuff I've learned from the two of you. But you can just, if I am a candidate scrolling through the job boards, the LinkedIn's, the whatever's, and I'm curious about what is out there, what do I want to do? And I see some sort of shared post on LinkedIn was like, we're hiring or come join a great team. And then it's just a picture of a company retreat that went out to you know California land or something. Why would I not assume that, oh, this is a half-ass, like, I, there's no, it's like going on a date with someone, I don't know how to say that. It's like phoning it in is the easiest term to use, but if that isn't an early indication of what my relationship with that person is going to be, then I don't know what is that. And it's such an, a ripe opportunity to present to the world how much you deeply care about your company, your team, the successes, the problems that you're solving, just to put yourself out there and voice that. Even yep. if it's been voiced a thousand times before in 10,000 other companies, People haven't heard your voice articulate your thoughts on the general topics. Absolutely. Yeah. And look, all you need to do is look at the companies that at least I think do this really well. And the example I keep coming back to again and again, just because they're so good at it, is SpaceX. SpaceX is incredibly good at hiring. A lot of what they do seems, oh, it's, think about SpaceX's business, right? SpaceX's business, they're a government contractor. The only person that pays their bills right now, basically, is the U.S. government. So why do they need this huge public presence? Like, why do they need to be in the world? Guess what? It's hiring. The 90-something the percent of the reason they're, that you know about them is because of hiring. Like putting the, the car in orbit and all this stuff. But I was also, Augustine, I was also just on that point. I was watching the Axe 1 launch last week. And I was just, I was marveling at the production of the launch for YouTube. Yes. And I was so amazed at the fact that A, those are employees of SpaceX, engineers who are working on various aspects of the rockets. They're, they're the people in the show. Yeah. The level of detail, not skimping over anything, it is a recruiting campaign from the moment that rocket... <laughs> is uh, on T minus whatever hours all the way through to the replays and the launch. It is recruiting. The kids watch it. The candidates watch it. It's just amazing that would be used uh, as a way to just seed candidates. Let me tell you a story about that. My kid's math teacher, you may have heard the story, but I will tell it anyway. My kid's math teacher, he did, I think he did chemical engineering and he taught math. And when he was teaching my kid's math, he was actually going back to university in his late 20s, going back to university, his wife, he's got a kid, but he's going back to university to do a master's in aerospace engineering. And the reason he wants to do that is because he wants to apply to a job at SpaceX. So think of how powerful a brand this employer has that somebody pretty smart has decided to dedicate at least two years of their lives 
in retraining just for a shot at that job, right? That's a powerful employer brand. Yeah. And frankly, I think there may be some people watching this that think the critique of this is about SpaceX. They have such an, like an incredible mission, but actually, I actually think it's true. And there's a lot of stats on it. LinkedIn themselves have some stats on this. And what, what the stats are, what the stats show is the number one thing candidates want to know is what are the interesting problems they're going to get to work on and who am I going to be working with? They want to see the faces and understand that. And I think Elon in particular understands that. We can look at Tesla. Like they did a whole thing called AI Day, which was ours. It's all on YouTube of their engineer. Elon was there, but his engineers were there like going through PowerPoints of detailed AI challenges they have like way in the weeds. And actually one of the investors tweeted to Elon, like, why are you doing this? This is, if anything, it's an IP leak because you're giving away a lot of details and number two, nobody understands this stuff. Like it's gobbledygook to 99% of the population. Like, why are you doing it? And you, because I need, it's a recruiting tool. Like it's hundred percent what he's doing. And so you can do the same thing with your company. You can go on LinkedIn and do PowerPoints on what are the interesting problems. People are going to see your face. They're going to know what it's like to work with you. And they're going to learn the kinds of problems they might get a chance to work on. We're the business. We've worked with with dozens of companies by now in shaping this message. And there's yet to be a, a company we've worked with that we couldn't find something compelling that that appealed to a certain segment of the population. Right. Oh, we make we make billing software, like doctor billing software. Yeah, well, guess what? If you have ever had to deal with the healthcare system and billing, you're probably pretty compelled to fix that problem doesn't appeal to everyone, but it's somebody out there is like, I got to fix that problem. So to summarize, what I really hear the key components of a, an empowered hiring process is one is what's the full vision of the process? Like from start to finish, what do we actually want to achieve? And what's the experience we want to have of this? And what's our end mm-hmm. goal? And then it's clarity, really like clear exploration and details of what um, the person is walking into, what you know, issues they might get to face and who their CTO is going to be, who you are in the process and who you're going to be in support of them. So when I hear this, it actually sounds like the key components of storytelling. Like you need to have a clear plot. You need to have clear characters. You need to have a clear, what's the the hero's journey going to be? That's so true. I, I love it phrased that way. And you're right, Britt. And just to put the cherry on top, you and your engineering team actually have to be the ones telling the story. You can't outsource this to your internal recruiting teams or some slick marketing job. What I mean is your face has to be on LinkedIn, just to be explicit. Your team has to be out there sharing this stuff because if your only interface with potential candidates is a sort of stale job description, your story won't be told, right? You can't tell a story in a job description. Yeah, it really perfectly aligns with our intention of this trimester, this tech trimester, which the main theme of it was attraction. Are you actually being in the world and you are you is your company creating in a way that has people attracted to who you are? And is the process a representative of who the company will be? I'm assuming that it happens sometimes that people go through an interview process, hear values, hear how the company is, and then they feel blindsided when they get there. So it sounds like there also is some good work to do is, is your culture and are your values represented in the hiring process? That's yeah, right. Yeah, that's something we can, which is probably something we can talk about maybe later, but is how do you create a hiring process and in particular an interviewing process that is honest about what you care about and serves as a powerful way to attract people? 
candidates. I mean, even if you reject a candidate, a great hiring process is one where even if you reject a candidate, they're going to go tell their friends, hey, I didn't get the job, but you you really need to apply there. So how can we create a process like that? Yeah. And, en- and engaging on the mission, just maybe a, to, to share an anecdote, we work with a client that was looking for a PHP developer and their job description was P- very generic. In fact, what's interesting is their job description could have been for like a thousand other companies or a thousand other jobs. It was just must be a good coder. And we got to talk to them. And it turns out this company is works in the brewing industry. So they have software that helps brewers brew beer. And we're like, whoa, whoa, this, this needs to be in your job description. And this is, this is the mission is you're looking for people who, of course, are technologically capable, but you want them to be aligned to your story, to your mission, which is to help brewers brew great beer. So that, that has to be part of the storytelling. Yeah. I, I like to say this whenever I talk about this stuff, but it's the, is the spec of PHP coding going to be satisfied by this candidate? and Will they be successful inside of this organization, which is something I learned from someone at Amazon. So it's it's always yeah. a, it's interesting how when this recruiting happens, all that emphasis is on the first, right? Can they do the job? Are you satisfied yes. that they know what they're talking about? Are they doing this? Are they passing all the coding tests? But then that process of change management, massaging them into a new system, team equilibrium, all that stuff seems to be an afterthought that that the process, the hiring process doesn't prepare someone for. So I, I loved what you said about having the interview process actually be a transparent yep. entryway into what they're sign what they would be signing up for eventually. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and that's where you get the really great results. If you can be, if you can show people, look, this is what the job is going to be like and what the team is going to be like, and this is why we do it. Then for one thing, they get a very good read on whether this is a fit for them. But the massive benefit is you get a way better read on how they would do for you and whether you want to give them an offer compared to here's Here's reverse a linked list for the thousandth time or something like that, right? It's not getting the job done. I think what we've said is really you have to authentically understand what you're looking for and what your team needs. So there isn't one size fits all hiring process that's going to be great for everyone. But what are some key like points or guidelines you would give people either here's where to start or here's where absolutely what not to miss? Are there any key Mm -hmm. things that you would put in that you haven't said? Yeah, so... For technical hiring in particular, and we'll say technical interviewing specifically, the number one failure mode that we see it again and again is interview processes over-index on technical skills and under-index on everything else. And there's a reason for that. Two reasons. One is because it's a technical job. Surely they ha- there's like a bar here that they have to meet, which is fine. But somewhat more importantly, technical skills are actually relatively easy to evaluate for, especially for, for technical interviewers that maybe haven't been very well trained. And so I can get go into a room, spend an hour with somebody, figure out if they're a good JavaScript developer. But it's harder, unless you're well trained, to figure out how they work in a team environment, what their preferences are in terms of a work environment, what their ambitions are for their careers, how they're going to fit in with other people, et cetera, et cetera. And yet, again and again, and when you talk to people who have had to you know, let people go and ask, what was the reason that you had to let this person go? It is rarely the case 
that the answer is, oh, their technical skills weren't good enough. That is rarely the answer. It is almost always something else, something interpersonal, an issue that a lot of those you could have picked them up in the interview process. So I would say technical interviewing over-indexing on skills is the number one failure mode we see. And the way to avoid that is to have an interview plan. I know it sounds boring, but every company work where we ask, what's your interview plan? And most companies, frankly, every hiring manager just wings it. They have their favorite interview questions like, oh, I've been asking this question for years and I just love it. And some of the questions are quite, some of the questions are quite bad. The problem is there isn't a systematic way to think about it. So I think to build on what Augustine's saying, You start your plan with sort of a list of skills that are must-haves, things that you need to evaluate, and then a list of abilities you're trying to value. What's their, what kind of cognitive abilities? What kind of preferences are you looking for? Do they like working teams? Do they like an individual? And you just list them down in a spreadsheet. And we're not going to get into the details here, but the point is you can imagine having a proper plan of what you want to evaluate, and then you build questions around that plan. Then you come back and and try to, to score it out. This is like so important. It actually... If you don't have an interview plan, you have to build one. And the other thing that we should talk about a little bit is is the fact that there's a lot of biases involved with hiring. And it's these biases are unconscious. They affect all of us. Engineers are certainly not immune to them at all. And that's the other reason to have a plan, frankly, is you will fall prey to these biases. Uh, We tend to want to hire people that are like us, and you'll fall into that trap over and over if you don't have a proper plan. So what would someone do if someone hears this, Paul, like, and they're like, oh, I've never thought about that. I need to get on that. What would they go do to learn about their biases? What would you suggest? Yeah, there's lots of ways to learning about biases in general. There's lots of good writing about them. But I think, again, your defense against biases is to have an a priori plan. There's something that I like to call the car dealership effect, which is you go, you're like, okay, you have it in your head that you're going to buy like a Toyota Camry, right? And so then you go to the dealership and man, they've got a really nice sports car there or actually, oh, it's a pickup truck. And man, look at this truck. It's trimmed out. And you come home with the pickup. That happens over and over again in hiring where we think we know what we want. And then when the candidates in front of us were like, I have to have this person. And that's a bias right there. Like you're just falling prey to your being in the moment. So the way you avoid the car dealer effect, again, is by having a rubric by which you're going to really evaluate the candidate. And so then you're sure you're going to come home with, with the candidate that you need. Is there any anything you're still seeing in the hiring process that we just need to take out? Is there something that a lot of companies are still doing that's irrelevant at this point? Coding. Let's get rid of that. Ghosting candidates. Let's get rid of that. If you can't commit to getting back to a candidate in a decent amount of time for every single candidate that applies to your positions, you have no business doing what you're doing. I love that. I can't tell you how many colleagues or clients I have that just never hear back from the people. And by the way, throwaway people. You know what a lot of CTOs say in response to that? It's not my fault. It's HR's fault. And I don't buy that excuse at all. It's up to you to make the org work with partners in your organization to make it work. I can't tell you the number of VPs of engineering have told me, it's HR's job to give me the resumes. It's their job to write back to the candidate. If it isn't working, you need to go in and make internal change so that it does work, right? You can't wash your hands of that problem. It just And it just constantly brings me back to we are over-optimized, overly fine-tuned to lean uh, sort of dry code 
managing resources, doing more with less. And it just absolutely right. translates for me into this hiring process, which needs to be fine-tuned in the other direction, juicy, delicious, conversational, yeah. time-consuming, did I say relational? Like It's just the other end of the spectrum. And so this is why I keep coming back to the person in the role of CTO who has to be the catalyst for change in that process. And yeah, it goes against the way we are fine-tuning our software delivery process, which is meant to get rid of waste when the hiring process is engaging with a lot of waste because you have to talk yeah. at length with a candidate who is en ends up not taking the position. Then you're like, okay, that was a waste of time. It really was. Yeah. And as far as time management goes, I love this as a quick self-check. So if you're listening to this, just ask yourself, how much time are you spending on recruiting and hiring? Just look at your calendar. And if the answer is very little, a couple hours a month or something, then you're probably not doing enough. You could start there from a very simple test and look at examples. And we talked about Elon. Elon spent like two hours in AI day. This is this guy's time is probably you know more valuable than anybody's on earth. <laughs> and he's just standing there for two hours. And so if you can't commit to to the equivalent for your company, I think that's not it's not gonna work. It is time consuming, but you have to do it. The other thing is, Etienne. I'm sure there's a CTO out there right now telling themselves, yeah, it's great. To, it's great you say about having to get a very differentiated blah, blah, blah. But look, I just need an Angular developer to just knock out this thing. That's just, that's all I need. And I think a lot of the time that we turn the hiring process into a warm bodies problem is because we're actually not very self-aware about where the value of our company is. Getting back to Paul's point, if really all you need is just a warm body Angular developer to knock out the why is that person in your organization? Like, why haven't you contra contracted that out to somebody? So this does get into organization design to the point where every single person that is a full-time employee of your company is valued in precisely that way that you've just described it yet. And, so that's and, an aspiration for CTOs as well. Yes, and that actually reminds me of one of the compensation conversations we published earlier. I loved, Paul, I think you went on, a, what, did, what, what did you call it? It was at the edge. Where is your edge? And let's invest bodies into that. That's right. And let's not over hire on the tactical thing that almost 80% of SaaS companies are doing out there, right? That's exactly right. You hollow it out. And Look, if you want to understand this better, just look at trends like over the last 20, 30 years. We used to have, we used to, for example, if you want to get technical, we used to have, for example, on-prem servers, right? And so we used to hire teams of people to manage, you know, servers. And then we realized we can just farm that out to the cloud. We don't need to be specialists in managing servers anymore. And so that trend continues. So what you want to do, don't spend your high value employees time on things that aren't contributing to your company edge. That's but, the bottom line. And then what I love sort of bringing this full circle is know then, therefore, what is your edge and right. boy, spend time in there and don't treat. Now, I love that. One thing I think we can maybe trademark from this conversation is instead of the which we could use the cold body approach. Oh, dude. Love it. Cold bodies. <laughs> so ultimately, the, the thing I hear the most resounding from this conversation is like my Shakespearean brain was just like, know thyself. Like you really have to know like where you are in your company, what's going on. So curiosity is huge. If you notice you're about to be in a hiring process, the first place maybe you should stop over is curiosity. 
Mm-hmm. Why are we hiring this role? Like all, all the questions. And then a ton of ownership. Who are we? Who am I? Who are we going to be about this? What is our value? How do we bring it into it? So it just sounds like you really have to be clear and like centered in the company to have an empowered hiring process or else you might just keep repeating the same thing over. And That's there's right. a there's this thing of, as you said that, Britt, I was reminded of the, it's almost there's that consensus in the meeting when it's, oh, yes, okay, let's go and hire for these people and then off you go. When really what we're saying is no, then at that point, turn around and quickly revisit who are we, why are we, what are the values. And it, it's not just like you have your marching orders, go and find these people. It's let's turn back around and revisit the big why. Is it inside of our edge? Is it outside? And, and, and have those conversations to save that time. Yeah, and it lets you open your mind to candidates you wouldn't have otherwise considered. We worked with a company where they said, yep, for this backend engineer role, Java is a hard requirement. We absolutely need it. And I pushed back. I said, listen, I give you an engineer who knocks it out of the park on all these other things you care about. They've been working in C++ for 10 years and have expressed an interest in learning Java. You're just going to turn them away? Hang on a sec. Maybe (laughs) then... How hard a requirement is it? What are we looking for? What are we what are we optimizing for? A lot of the times you'll hire a database admin. MySQL experience absolutely required. Must have MySQL experience. And then nine months later, you're like, you know what? We're moving to okay. I love that. So I love it's it. not all about. And and this is what we're saying is that the know thyself conversations could actually impact the spec that you write. And you might right. call that dreadful. This person has to excel at 23 things yeah must have a 20-year experience in react which is five years old the other reason to know thyself is again because it's matchmaking you're going to have to work on making yourself attract this isn't a one-way thing they're looking at you so if you don't know what's attractive about you and your team you're not going to attract anybody and the way this manifests itself is just in trading this is how it works all the time is adverse selection so let's say that you interview 10 candidates and the top two candidates, they get nine other offers. The middle six candidates get one other offer and the last two candidates get zero offers, right? Let's say out of these 10 candidates, you, you, you obviously want to make an offer to those top two candidates, just like the other nine other companies will. Maybe you'll make an offer to the ones in the middle and maybe you might screw up and make an offer to the ones that you don't want. The point is, Starting out, your chances of getting the superstar candidates are only one in 10 because they've got so many other offers. And the people in the middle, maybe they're going to flip a coin and pick your offer or somebody else's. And those two bottom two candidates, like they're jumping at your offer because it's the only one they have. So in hiring, it is always an adverse selection world. You are always going to get a slightly poorer fraction of the candidates that you make offers to because the good ones have options. And so the way you counteract that, the way you fix that adverse selection, is by being so compelling that candidates don't see 10 other offers. They just see this is the offer. So good. So good. I love it. Adverse selection. Whole chapter in my book. Are we wrapping up? Yeah. Anything, Paul or Augustine, that you haven't said that would be a last? This is something, a do or don't, or even where someone could find more information that you posted or 
this book you speak of, Augustine? You can go to certifiedhiring.com. A lot of the stuff we talked about today is somewhere on our blog. I'll give you some idea of that. But I think big picture, the thing is, get excited about this. This is the future of your company. The barriers to entry in software are actually relatively small. The thing that is your durable edge over time is the people that walk in the door every day. So get excited about getting the right people in the door. Yeah. And just understand that it's actually central to your job. Again, it's that pivot from being that technical product builder that Etienne was talking about to thinking more like a team builder and a, and a representer of the organization. That's how you have to think. Yeah. So good. Thank you, gents. Sure. That's fun. Brett, thank you. Right. Yeah. We will see you soon. 